I am excited to get into Psalm 119 with you today. Let's pray. Father, as the psalmist penned so many years ago, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your law. God, feed our souls on your word. I pray that the joy that this psalmist had in your word would be contagious and that we would leave here with a greater hunger and love and desire for you and your word to understand it and to obey it. God, that we would be a people consumed by your word, saturated in your word, that it would be what we think about when we rise and when we lie down. It would be our meditation throughout the day at the office, at the factory, at the airfield, in the home. God, give us ears to hear and a heart to respond. Please send your Holy Spirit to make specific application, to bring conviction, exhortation, understanding, transformation as we look at your holy word together. We pray this with hope, knowing that you love your children and that you are a good, good father who feeds your children, that you don't let us starve, but you prepare a feast for us in your word. God, let us feast in this moment together, we pray. And thanks to you for this feast. In Jesus' good name, amen. George Weishart was the Bishop of Edinburgh uh, in the 17th century. And he was condemned to death. He was going to be executed. But there was a custom at the time that at your execution, you could request a psalm to be read. And he chose Psalm 119. Uh, They actually sung the psalm. And they only got two-thirds through the psalm uh, of singing Psalm 119 before a pardon came through and his life was spared. So the big idea for us today, church, the application for our lives is to request Psalm 119 at your execution. Okay, any questions? Great, let's pray. All right, I'm just kidding. Um, Though, keep it in the back of your mind. You never know what situation you might find yourself in. Well, today we have come to Psalm 119 for the second time. Uh, Bob Nakaoka preached a section of Psalm 119 for us a few weeks ago, and I have heard multiple reports of uh, thanksgiving and appreciation for his message and even requests to have him back. So, Bob is back on the docket by popular demand, and he's going to be back with us in just a few weeks to present another psalm to us as well. And uh, even though Bob covered one section, Psalm 119 is so vast, so expansive, there is much more that can be said in, in just one message. And so we're back today in Psalm 119. I want to first off talk to you about the big picture of Psalm 119, uh, a few aspects. Number one, the length. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. In fact, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's uh, 176 verses, 22 sections, each with eight verses. And that might raise the question of why so long? In fact, there's repeated themes throughout. You might think, uh, well, couldn't he have said this in a little, little more brevity? Why is it so long? Well, let me ask you, why do you go to the ocean? 
I mean, you can just fill your bathtub with water and get in your bathtub and, you know, be surrounded by water. Why bother going to the ocean? Well, there's a world of difference, isn't there, between taking a dip in your bathtub versus being knocked over by a wave in the ocean. Psalm 119 is an ocean wave that crashes over us. The psalmist is not being redundant, even though he seems to be repeating himself uh, in multiple ways. He's not being redundant. It's the very length of Psalm 119 that makes it so effective. If it was shorter, it wouldn't have its same effect. Psalm 119 brings us into an experience of God's word, not simply a communication of a few truths. Number two, uh, as we look at the big picture, I want to talk about Psalm 119 in history. Uh, How many of you are familiar with Matthew Henry? Several of you? Okay, Matthew Henry, famous Bible commentator. Uh, He wrote a commentary on the entire Bible. That is seriously impressive. And it's still used today. Uh, And the fact that he is from the uh, the 18th century and that we're still using his commentary today uh, is a testimony to its legacy and its power. Uh, One Bible scholar said it's the greatest devotional commentary ever written. Well, I wonder if uh, Matthew Henry's penning of this great commentary was due, at least in part, to his father, Philip Henry. Philip Henry had his children meditate on one verse of Psalm 119 every single day. And in that way, they could work through the entire psalm in a year. Perhaps that influenced Matthew Henry to grow up to be a man who so loved God's word. Martin Luther, who we recently uh, remembered as we celebrated the Reformation, Martin Luther said that he valued Psalm 119 so much that he would not trade the entire world for a single page of it. Psalm 119 has also been memorized in history by some some famous people. The uh, famous missionary, pioneer missionary to Africa, David Livingston, memorized entire uh, Psalm 119. William Wilberforce, uh, who's not a missionary, not a pastor, but he was, get this, a politician, he memorized all of Psalm 119. William Wilberforce, if you don't know your history, uh, was the great reformer in British, the British Empire who led to the abolition of the slave trade. Long before slavery was outlaw, uh, outlawed in the United States, William Wilberforce worked tirelessly to bring it to an end in Britain. Was his godliness connected to his being saturated in the Word of God. I think it was. Number three, let's, as we think of the big picture, let's consider its structure. Now, Bob talked about this when he uh, preached, but a, a refresher for you, that Psalm 119 is a highly structured psalm. Uh, it's an acrostic. So every section uh, starts with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's, uh, it, it covers 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and within each section, every line, of, of, there's eight verses in every section, 22 sections, and every verse, those every, uh, all, the, all eight verses start with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So this is a very rigid, highly structured um, design that the psalmist has uh, restricted himself to in writing. 
uh, to give you, maybe to help visualize this, we lose this, of course, when you translate. When you go from one language to another, not every word in English starts with the letter A that started with the letter Aleph in Hebrew. And so we lose this uh, in, in translation. But to, what this might look like in English, an example, I think we've got this to put on the screen. Uh, I wrote a little bit of a, an example for you here. Awesome is God. Adam he made. Apples to aardvarks. His creation shows his glory. All of creation praise him. Now, if this was Psalm 8, it would have four more lines, not just, not four, it would have eight. Next section, B, blessed be God. Because he rules the universe, I shall not fear. By his word, the heavens were made. Bow down before him. So you get the idea. Every section starting with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, why did they do this? Um, Several reasons might come to mind. He didn't say explicitly anywhere why he chose this structure, so we can only guess. One very practical consideration is that by structuring it this way, it would have made it much easier to memorize. Uh, this would be much easier to recall in memory, having this very formal structure, and you could just work your way through it, and, and so this would make it much easier to memorize. Second, this communicates some sort of comprehensiveness of treatment of God's Word, as this is a psalm that reflects on the Word of God it's, we could, we, maybe in English we'd say, he's covered it from A to Z. That there's just this thoroughness, this, comp- this comprehensiveness of, of examining God's word, of meditating on God's word. Fourth, what is the purpose of this psalm? Big picture. As I see it, Psalm 119 is a heartfelt expression of love to God. And it's a prayer longing to know God and to obey his word. God's word is referred to in multiple ways in this psalm, uh, law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, word, and each of those different words have a different connotation, and we could spend time talking about that, but we, we won't for time's sake. But I think it's important as a New Testament believer regarding our interpretation, how we read Psalm 119, is I think it's entirely appropriate Uh, not to see these references as simply referring to the portion of scriptures that had been written at that time of the psalmist, uh, which was probably the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But this would be, this refers to all of scripture. So as we read about God's law or his precepts or his testimonies, his commandments, his word, as we pray Psalm 119, as we make it our own, it's right for us to consider these references to all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation as we pray this as New Covenant believers. David Powelson points out how personal Psalm 119 is. Even though it talks about God's Word, um, in fact, he he notices that uh, a reference to God's Word appears once in each verse. And that's a lot of references, right? That's 176 references. But references to I or you occur about four times. So there's a four to one ratio here. This is an intensely personal psalm. It's not just a treatise. It's not just let me teach you. This is a earnest, personal, intimate prayer to and with the God of the universe. Do you remember Psalm 1 when we started this journey, our survey through the book of Psalms? We started with Psalm 1. It starts off by saying, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law 
he meditates day and night. Well, fast forward to Psalm 119. I think Psalm 119 is, is a picture, a living example of what does it look like? What does that blessed man or woman look like who meditates on, day, on God's word day and night? If, you, if you're that blessed man or woman, Psalm 119 is what that looks like in real life. It's a, it's a living, breathing uh, picture of the teaching of Psalm 1 put into practice. This is somebody who has saturated themselves in God's word, who has soaked in God's word, and God's word is now flowing out of them. You poke them and you get scripture. I remember a guy uh, in college that really challenged me. I didn't really get into scripture memory. I'm, I'm thankful that our church puts an emphasis on scripture memorization in our children's ministry. I'm thankful that our, our youth leaders put an emphasis on scripture memorization in our youth ministry. I didn't really get that growing up. Uh, I memorized maybe just a few verses uh, in my, as a child and teenage years. It wasn't until college I really got serious about scripture memorization. And I met this guy, and by his own admission, he would tell you, look, I'm no Einstein, I'm no genius, I'm just kind of your average intelligence guy. But he had memorized about 2,000 verses of scripture. And, I mean, you'd like just poke this guy and you just get scripture. Like, he wasn't trying to be showy, but it's, it's like he had so much scripture poured into his heart that you just, like, when he spoke, I mean, that's just what came out was scripture. Uh, and it was just... It was just a joy to be around because this is a guy that the word of God is just flowing out of. And I think Psalm 119 is that kind of person. And, and I just let me just throw that out there as a, as a standard. This guy told me, I think if I remember correctly, this is many years ago, uh, he, he was talking about his, his daughter. By the time she graduated high school, I think she had 500 verses of scripture memorized. That's not hard at all, parents. I mean, you just do the math. One verse a week. That's 50 verses a year. You get two weeks off somewhere. Uh, you know, in 10 years, that's 500 verses. If you are systematic about reviewing and studying Scripture. Um, but you got to do it. Like, it's part of our routine at home. We, part of our family devotional time, we have a, a system of going through verses. My wife would be happy to walk you through it and help you gain that. Um, where we review a verse uh, every day. Once we get it down, we go to every other day. Then it goes to weekly. Then it goes to monthly. And there it stays forever because you have to keep reviewing it. Otherwise, it will be lost. And it's like, well, that's a waste of all that work and effort. But that should not be the exception, 500 verses by the time you graduate high school. That should be the norm. That should be what we just do if we're a people of the book. But it has to be done. You cannot rely, parents, you cannot rely on the church to do that for you. One hour on Sunday, one hour on Wednesday is not going to get the job done. This is a parental thing that has to happen. Okay, way on off on a tangent. Where was I? Okay, Psalm 119 is a picture of somebody who loves God's word. And it calls us to love God's word. Not so much by exhortation, you should do this, but simply by experience and by example. It's like getting close to a fire, like you just can't help but get warm. You, so you approach a, a, a roaring campfire, it's going to warm you up as you stand in its presence. And that's what Psalm 119 does for us. Uh, I play the violin, as some of you know, but I never told you why I, I learned to play the violin. It wasn't because I was exhorted to do so. It wasn't because anybody told me I should do it. I learned to play the violin because in third grade, the orchestra teacher came into our classroom 
and he played some bluegrass music. And I just thought that was so cool. And I wanted to do that. Now, the great tragedy is I went on and was classically trained and I never learned to play bluegrass. But, um, so I cannot play Orange County or Orange Blossom Special. Please do not ask for it. Um, <clears throat> this guy in my old church would keep, uh, repeatedly ask that and I couldn't play it. Um, but I learned to play because I saw it, I heard it, and I wanted that. And that's what Psalm 119 can do for us. And that's what I hope it will do for us today. And the big idea of Psalm 119 is to love and obey God's word. Love and obey God's word. It would be a very convenient Sunday for me to preach all of Psalm 119, all 176 verses. We've got plenty of time. We have a members meeting at 6.30 tonight. And so if I started now, I think I could be done by about 6.30. And we could just go straight into the members meeting. Okay, I'm not going to do that. Don't worry. Uh, my family last year got to visit Yosemite National Park. Yosemite National Park is, is huge. It's gorgeous. one of my favorite national parks. Uh, it's, over, it's nearly 748,000 acres, over 1,100 square miles. And we spent a week there and visited several sections of the park, multiple trips into the park. But what was humbling was even after a week in Yosemite, we had only seen a fraction of the park. It's so huge. But to enter Yosemite, we were staying uh, south of the park, and so we entered on the far side of the park, and there's this road that traverses the entire park, kind of cuts it in half. And it's, again, to, to get a grasp of the size of the park, it took three hours from the time we entered the park to the time we exited the park on the other side, three hours to cross. And by no means did we see the whole park by driving that. But it did give us a sense of the greatness of, of Yosemite. It did give us a chance to get kind of a sampling of Yosemite. And that's what I want to do for us today, is give us a survey of Psalm 119. We're not going to cover all of it. We're not even going to cover a, a, a large amount of it, just a fraction of it, but a, a brief survey. But what I want to do is share for you a few repeated themes that I see in this psalm. Four, four themes. Number one, love God's word. Number two, understand God's word. Number three, obey God's word. And number four, suffer well. So let's, let's look at these. And I'm just going to read some verses uh, under each of these sections uh, that give you a sampling of, this, of each theme that is repeated. Number one, love God's word. Notice all these points are imperatives, they're commands, they're things to do. So we can be doers of the word, as James says, not hearers. Love God's word. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. That's some pretty high praise, isn't it, church? And the psalmist had never even read Romans. 
He had never seen the glory of Jesus, God incarnate in the Gospels that we have seen. If he loved God's word like this, how much more should we as new covenant believers? Do you love God's word like this, church? This past week, we laid to rest our sister Lois Coates. Many of you might not know this about Lois, but Lois was born in China. Her parents were missionaries um, in China back in the 30s, 1930s, and she was born on the mission field. By the, when she came to the United States, she didn't speak English, only Chinese. And when she was four years old, her family, she had seven siblings, her parents, her seven, uh, or sorry, six siblings, seven total. When she was only four years old, her family was attacked by bandits. And uh, probably because they were Westerners and thought to be rich, um, quite possibly because the bandits had observed the, uh, the Bernheim family, that was her maiden name, the Bernheim family, carrying a large suitcase out of their house on multiple occasions. So they thought there was wealth there. And so these bandits attacked their home. And that attack would take the life of both her parents and one of her brothers. Um, and so picture this. The bandits have, have attacked their home. Her mom has just been shot and killed. Their dad has been mortally wounded. He'll die two days later from, from his wounds. Her brother's been killed. And her sister, her older sister, who's about eight years old, Ruthie. The bandits are wanting money. They're wanting, they're wanting treasures. Uh, they were disappointed to discover that the large suitcase they had seen was simply filled with Bibles and religious literature. And so the bandits are wanting riches. Ruthie has just lost her mom. Her dad's mortally wounded. Her brother's shot. And this is what she says. She says she takes the family, she takes the Bible and she hands it to the bandits and says, this is the most valuable thing we have. Do you love God's word like that? The psalmist's love and devotion to God's word and just how valuable he considers it is seen in his next repeated prayer request. Lord, help me understand your word. Number two, understand God's word. Understand God's word. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Talk about, again, the love of God's word and valuing, treasuring God's word. The psalmist says, it was okay. It was not just okay. It was good that I was afflicted. I am glad that I suffered because out of my suffering, I learned God's word. 
And so I value, I mean, most of us, we want, what do we want? We want comfort, we want ease, we want a carefree life. And a lot of times when we get angry and frustrated with people, it's because our idol of comfort and ease of life has been interrupted. The psalmist said, hey, affliction's worth it. Affliction's a good thing. If I, get, if I get a better understanding of God's word, I have gained something, and the affliction was all worth it. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I might know your testimonies. The application, church, is simple. Pray, beg, cry out to God for an understanding of his word. I'm just going to be honest. In my, my decades of being a Christian, I have not heard a lot of crying out to God. Lord, show us what your word means. God, show us how your word applies to the situation we're in. Whenever our church is facing a decision, is this our heart's cry? God, show us how the word of God applies to this situation. Is this your heart cry in your marriage, in your family, in your parenting? And your decision-making, God, help me to understand your word so that I can obey it. Which is his third, the third repeated emphasis I saw. Number three, obey God's word. A repeated request is for God to help him understand, to help him to, to not in just to like make his life more comfortable, but he's asking God, help me. Why? So I can obey your word. Number three, obey God's word. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. This blessing has fallen to me, that I have kept your precepts. The, the prosperity gospel says, hey, the blessing is to have a really nice car. And the psalmist says, you know what would be a really great blessing is to obey God's word. If I could have a legacy, if my life could be a life that is a life of obedience, oh God, that would be such a blessing. That's better than Alexis. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. I don't want people around me who are pursuing evil, because that's going to be a hindrance. That's going to be a temptation. That's going to be something that's going to get in the way of obeying God, and that's what I want to do. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. Church, how often do you earnestly pray for God's help to obey? Look, it's not wrong to pray for healing. I pray for healing. We pray each, for each other in healing. That's, that's right. That's a good thing. But it shouldn't dominate our prayer requests. Do, do we pray for understanding of God's word? Do we pray for an understanding so that we can obey God's word? Do we pray, God, help me to obey. Help me to be godly. I think, I think sometimes the American church is imbalanced in our prayer life. We pray so often, God, change my circumstances. And it's not wrong to pray that. It's not. But we also need to pray, but God, if that's not your will, then change me. Help me, regardless of whether my circumstances change or get worse, help me to be godly in my circumstances. Help me to be a man or woman of character, of holiness, of, of integrity, of godliness, a person who loves What's Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 13? If you don't have love, you're nothing. I don't care how smart you are. 
I don't care how accomplished you are. I don't care how rich you are. If you don't love people, you're a a noisy gong, Apostle Paul says. let's, Let's make this practical. Do you pray, God, make my spouse stop being so frustrating? Or do you pray... God, help me to show patience and to be godly when my spouse frustrates me. I have given my wife multiple occasions to pray the former. God, you know, she could have, on many occasions, God helped Charles not to be so frustrating because he is. But she has modeled patience and godliness throughout our 16 plus years of marriage. And you know what? I think that's She's been, no one has been more instrumental in my own personal growth, in my own sanctification than my wife. I, I, I just, I don't, you wouldn't want me. You wouldn't want to be around me if it wasn't for my wife. That's one, uh, one guy said, Charles, Melissa makes you bearable. And that is true. It really is. Um, so what is your prayer? Are you, are you praying for godliness? Are you praying for obedience? We should be striving for that. And and that ties right into the fourth emphasis we see, suffer well, suffer well. You're going to suffer. And I want you to know that ahead of time. Some of you are already there. (laughs) I want you to know that so it doesn't catch you off guard. The author of Psalm 119 is no stranger to suffering, but he expresses a high view of the sovereignty of God, and he continues to trust God in the midst of his suffering. How long will your, must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? In other words, I'm being persecuted right now. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. Walking in obedience to God's word is no guarantee of freedom from hardship. In fact, what what did the Apostle Paul say? All that desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus may be persecuted? No, he said they will be persecuted. There's no prosperity gospel here. I'm not going to be able to make millions and sell, uh, you know, best-selling book saying, hey, you're going to suffer in life. Um, But this is a picture of what godliness looks like under fire. This is what godliness looks like in suffering. This is what the godly man or woman prays in the midst of suffering. Worship team, will you come forward? So we've come to that point, church. The question we always have to ask ourselves, so what? That's Psalm 119, in a nutshell. What are you going to do about it? Where's your love and devotion for God's word? Are you having a daily talk? That's, that's time alone with God. Is, is this just part of your routine? That every day I'm in God's word. 
spending time in his word. Are you teaching your kids to do that? One of the legacies that Melissa and I uh, really want to impart, and we especially saw this after being years and years in youth ministry, uh, we'd see so many teenagers who weren't reading the Bible, and we just felt like, wow, we want this to be a habit. What a blessing that would be if, you're, if our children grow up, and this is just their habit. And, and parents, you're already doing it. You're teaching your kids to brush their teeth daily, I hope. Uh, you, you teach them to wash their hands after they go to the bathroom, I really hope. Uh, this is a habit to impart to your children. The church can't do that for you. They have to see it in you. Where did, where did little Ruthie come to the conviction in the midst of unbelievable trauma that for what, would out, what would be the overflow of her heart to say this is the most valuable thing we have? Where did that come from? Was it because one time her parents said, now Ruthie, if you're ever asked for money, this is what you should say. I don't think so. I, if I were a betting man, which I'm not, I would bet that what Ruthie saw growing up was a mom and dad who loved God's word. That they didn't have to command her to love God's word. She saw it lived out in her parents. She saw in them something authentic, a love for God's word. She learned by example a love for God's word. So parents, do you model this for yourself? Or do, your parents, do your kids see you alone with your Bible? Do they know that this is a priority for mom and dad? We desperately need. If, if Christianity is going to survive, if, if, the, if the baton of faith is going to be passed from one generation to the next in the midst of the dark and evil times we are in, it is going to happen, I believe, through godly families that model this. We so desperately need moms and dads who love God's word. And I especially, men, I want to pick on you. You set, the, you set the, 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 the bar. You're the leader. God has put you to lead your family. You should be par excellence, the example of loving God's word. There's something exciting going on in men's ministry. A little, little sneak preview for you. Four of our guys went to the men's retreat a couple months ago up in the mountains, and God lit them. There was, there was something that happened in them. I think of what our brother Michael told me. He said, I've never experienced anything like what I just had, and I just wish I could go back. God lit a fire that weekend, and men's ministry is being reborn, and it's not being done by, by the efforts of man. It's being done by the work of the Holy Spirit, and we're excited to kick off in January. Um, so stay tuned. More details about uh, a vision for men's ministry, but becoming a place, a church, where there is authentic discipleship and community among men, where men are holding men accountable, where men are teaching each other, where they're challenging each other, where they're doing life together, and they're pushing each other towards godliness. I'm excited about what God is doing. I just feel like this, the train is already going, and I'm just jumping on the train. I didn't start the train. I didn't make the train. I'm just, I'm just climbing on. But where we're going to start, I'll tell you, man, we're going to start with devotion to God's word. Because you can't lead anybody until you learn to lead yourself to God's word. And we so desperately need a generation of men grounded in God's word, who know what God's word says, who believe it, who live it. May all of our children to grow up to be like Ruthie. 
Are you praying for understanding? Are you seeking to understand God's word? Life is hard, right? Life is complicated. And decision-making is not always simple. I mean, sometimes it's easy, like, mm, should I rob the bank? Uh, no. Okay, you should not do that. But sometimes life is complicated. And we need to pray, cry out, God, show me how God's word applies to this specific situation. Because I am convinced that God is such a good father. He doesn't just give us God's word for some of life. He gives it to us for all of life. No matter what you encounter, no matter what you deal with, God has given us enough counsel in his word either by examples, indirect examples, commands, that all of life is covered, no matter what you're dealing with. But we have to seek that out, that understanding. Do we pray for strength to obey God's command? I'm hoping there's some transformation in your daily prayer life that comes out of this Sunday, that you are praying for understanding, you're praying for strength. God, help me to obey Scripture. More than we pray for God, make my life easy and comfortable. We will be comfortable for all eternity. Ten trillion years into, into undescribable joy, we're not going to be suffering anymore. But for here and now, affliction is part of life. And we should be seeking to obey God more than we should be seeking comfort. And we should press into Him when we are suffering. So that's just a short survey of Psalm 119. Um, you know, as I was meditating on it, I had such joy. Uh, I spent several days going through Psalm 119 in, in preparation for this, and I had such joy in studying Psalm 119 that at night I was looking forward to getting up the next morning and, and opening God's Word and seeing what, what, what does God have for me next? What, what am I going to experience tomorrow as I spend time in Psalm 119? And I just, man, I just want that for you, church. I want you to experience that same joy. So I invite you to meditate through Psalm 119, experience for yourself. Let the wave crash over you and experience the joy and the transformation that only God's word through his spirit can bring. Father, I pray that as we go into our time of meditation that you would do business with our hearts and that you would change us, God, from the inside out. May we be a people that love your word and obey it and cling to you in suffering. In Jesus' name.